3: Hey, this is DeRay, and thanks for listening to the first episode of Pod Save the People. You know, I started this podcast with the aims of creating a space where people can have conversations that change the world, a space where we can dream again about a different way of being. The current political moment has created a confetti of crises. There's just so much to look at all at once. But I'm reminded that we are more than the wildest thing we've ever experienced, and that there is still joy in this world, and we can't forget it, and that we all have things to learn, and that we, each of us, needs to be refilled with inspiration. Pod Save the People is so named because I know that we will save ourselves. That there's no savior to wait for. That has been said over and over again. We are the ones we've been waiting for. Today, we talked to Cory Booker, Andy Slavitt, and a host of other people as we think about this current climate and what we can do. And this episode is dedicated to Jordan Edwards, who was killed by the Dallas police yesterday. And now My Two Cents with Brittany Packnett, former member of the Ferguson Commission and an appointee by President Obama to the United States Task Force on 21st Century Policing, and Sanderson Yangwe, a data scientist with Campaign Zero. So let's start with the two pieces of news that are important to you. Sam, let's go with you. Sure. So the first piece of news that I
0: want to talk about is the Florida Supreme Court just approved the ballot initiative that would automatically restore voting rights to people who have serve their time with felony convictions and restore 1.7 million uh, voters to Florida, which is a critical, obviously, battleground state. And that means one in four, about one in four black folks uh, who cannot vote uh, will be eligible to vote if this amendment gets passed uh, in 2018 with 60 percent of the vote.
3: Now, so the Supreme Court approved it to move forward to go to the ballot.
0: Yeah, so the Supreme Court basically said that the language of the ballot uh, is okay, and now they need to start collecting signatures to actually put it on the ballot. So there's a big push around, I think they need something like 700,000 signatures Mm. uh, to actually get this on the ballot for 2018. So it's a big push, big organizing push uh, from a bunch of different organizations uh, in the state.
3: And you've had a conversation with some of those organizers, right?
0: Yep. Uh, So... One of the people leading the effort is uh, Desmond Mead uh, with the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition. Uh, and so, you know, you can like go to their website and actually sign the petition there. You can print it out, sign it, and then send it in. Um, but yeah, so uh, there's a huge effort going on there. And it's like, I think under the radar when you think about, oh, yeah. you know, the significance that this could have, uh, not only in, you know, next presidential election, but really for Democrats. Um, for the rest of, you know, our generation, actually.
1: Hey, Sam, just so I'm clear, the initiative that is proposed to go on the ballot is that people will actually vote on whether or not to reinstore uh, those voting rights. Is that correct? Reinstate. Yes. Reinstore is not a word. Reinstate.
3: <laughs> you tried, though. We were going let that slide. Reinstate. <laughs> I was like, that's cool. Oh, no, I know. was like, okay. It's late. Reinstate so those
1: voting rights. I was. You, you, had to, you have to say whatever you say I with confidence. Um, to rein- That's what's actually going on the ballot? Yes. Got you.
3: So after you finish listening, listeners, then we will make sure that you can find the information about how to participate in the ballot initiative at podsavethepeople.com.
1: There's a more fascinating conversation here, though, about whether or not people's rights should be up for public opinion, right? I mean, that was part of the conversation, if I remember correctly, in California several years ago around marriage equality um, as to whether or not. We should actually be putting people's rights on the ballot for other people to judge whether or not I should have the things that um, should be given to me, according to the Constitution. Like it should be given. Right. That This is actually not up to your opinion. This is not about red or blue. This is not about Democratic or Republican. This is about my right as a citizen. I have paid my time um, and therefore I should be able to um, have my rights reinstated, (laughs) which is the correct word. Um, But but clearly, if this is the way that people have to if this is how we have to move forward in Florida, that it's important to support. This.
3: And maybe this can be a, a bellwether case that we can yeah. take this model of organizing somewhere else. Sam, what's your second one?
0: So the second one has to do with the uh, district court in I think Northern California, which actually blocked Trump's executive order uh, that would have defunded sanctuary cities. So you know, this is just huge because you know sanctuary cities have have emerged, and actually I think more of them now have emerged since the election uh, as places that have protected. Um, and that do not cooperate with ICE in order to protect undocumented immigrants. And so blocking this order is really important Mm. uh, to making sure that, you know, those cities actually can continue doing their work and and don't uh, see their budgets cut.
3: God bless the judges. We need them to be courageous. Amen. Sam, thank you for your two. Brittany.
1: Oh, boy. So obviously there's been a lot happening this week. First, I'd like to talk about... uh, some folks president, Donald Trump, signing an executive order um, directing the education secretary to study, quote, the federal overreach uh, in education. What's interesting about this is that it actually doesn't really change a lot of the power that the secretary already has, right? They've already got federal oversight power. That is the power that Secretary DeVos used um, to, for instance, pull back protections for transgender students and their ability to use bathrooms freely. Uh, And so it was was kind of, there's a question as to why you would sign this executive order anyway, Um, but I think what we have to pay attention to is people who work with marginalized communities and people of color is to recognize that this is a signal of what's to come Uh, and to remember that conversations about federal overreach are really conversations about restoring states' rights, and we know that states' rights, local control are two things that generally do not benefit people of color and marginalized people, right? There's a reason why Title VII funds that um, direct money toward American Indian education Title I funds that direct money toward low-income schools, Title IX funds that protect marginalized students, transgender students, girls, Um, there's a reason why all of that stuff sits at the federal level, because traditionally, people of color and marginalized folks have needed federal protection to get what we deserve. So uh, we have to remain diligent, right, and recognize that even if this executive order doesn't have a whole lot of power, that we pay attention to what's to come.
3: I didn't know that that got signed. That is— Yeah, right at
1: that 100-day mark, too, which is significant.
3: (laughs) <laughs> You're right too about this idea that like federal over- overreaches is like a dog whistle for states' rights. Absolutely, and I think people miss that.
1: People miss it all the time, right? It sounds like um, it sounds like language that's not harmful, but that's what politics is full of, right? It's full of dog whistles. It's full of language that is supposed to help people think that we're working in their favor when, in reality, um, we're potentially doing things that really harm them.
3: Yeah. Sam.
0: And are there sort of forms of federal overreach that you're seeing that actually uh, are harmful to people of color? And, you know, is it all bad towards people of color in terms of when they talk about states' rights? Or or now are you seeing sort of the opposite in play where a lot of times the federal government is sort of overreaching to intervene to, to harm minorities?
1: Yeah, it, it is, it's interesting because it's used both ways, right? So you want to use federal overreach to pull protections from transgender students, but you want to get rid of federal overreach where it doesn't serve your needs and your outcomes. Uh, that makes it all the more important, though, for us to be really involved in, in what our state legislatures are doing, what our local um, city councils and mayors are doing, because all of this stuff is happening simultaneously, um, and we need to pay attention to it.
3: It'll be interesting to, you to see what what uh, what happens with funding, given this, mm-hmm. right? That, like, we know that local departments of education get so much money from the federal government, yep. and if they use federal overreach to take money from school systems that are already really struggling, this mm-hmm. can have dire impacts on uh, any urban school system.
1: That's right, and to incentivize certain kinds of schools to be built, to um, create disincentives for other kinds of schools to be built. I mean, it's all um, about the power of the purse, right, and the carrot and the stick. Right. Yeah. No, My Michelle. other piece of news um, is about Auntie Michelle. Uh, <laughs> you know, I couldn't come here and not talk about Black Women at Work. Um, people are having lots of— Have you didn't of- know
3: Brittany is who made Black Women at Work trend? <laughs>
1: well, it, it was—you know, it's a, been a fascinating conversation, but one of the pieces that came up in that broader conversation is about our compensation and how much we are worth and our value um, in the market. Now, I'm not here to have a conversation about the evils or ills of capitalism, right? No, no. We should talk about it. We should talk point. about it at some point. We'll bring it
3: up. People are in my mentions all day about neoliberalism. <laughs> all day. We're gonna have day. a conversation about it.
1: It's totally worth having a conversation about. Um, but in the context in which we live and work right now, which is a capitalist society, um, there's been these conversations about what Michelle Obama is pulling in for her speakers fees. We know that people have been talking about Barack Obama pulling in about four hundred thousand per speech. Well, Michelle is pulling in about half that. Auntie Michelle is getting about two hundred thousand per speech, and the work that was used to describe it uh, uh, earlier this week by Business Insider was stunning, right? It was a stunning amount. Um, And I thought about that, right? And the pathology of that. And what does it say that we find a black woman actually getting what her market value is, a stunning thing versus something that should actually be normal? So I did a little bit of research and in 2014, the person, believe it or not, who is the highest paid speaker on the speaker circuit is now your president, Donald Trump. Hmm. He was collecting $1.5 million dollars per speech, so we're Who a- essentially listen. Like it was, I found it on ABC News, um, and he there were a couple of speeches uh, in 2013 and 2014 when he collected that amount. And so we're essentially talking about like chump change, right? When we're talking about 200k and 400k, and again, that's not to say we shouldn't have important conversations about capitalism and all those things. I also know a lot of folks coming out of the Obama White House are um, taking paid speeches so that they can do other things for free, right? And to make sure that when it comes to the people that they don't have to ask for for money. Um and so I think that it's important to recognize the nuance in this conversation and if we're really gonna talk about it, we need to talk about what people are being paid, period. Right. George W. Bush is making about two hundred thousand, um Hillary Clinton's making about two hundred thousand, but Donald Trump was raking in one point five million. So I do not want to hear the word stunning accompany the two hundred thousand that Michelle Obama is collecting That's ever real. again.
3: <laughs> That's real. Sam?
0: Yeah, I mean it's wild. There's been a lot of debate. Um You know, on Twitter, folks have been sort of of two minds about it. You know, when I look at it, it is one like it is not unusual, Brittany, like as you were saying, for somebody to make that kind of money with the status that Michelle Obama has or the status that Barack Obama has. Um, If anything, you know, a lot of folks with that have less to talk about and have done less uh, make more in speaking fees like Donald Trump. And her education, Um, you know. Yeah. (laughs) And and then there's a question of, you know, is, is it that they shouldn't be speaking at all? Is it that they should be, like, what do people want from them, right? Yeah. That they, they should be speaking to Wall Street and telling them, you know, essentially to clean up their act um, and do that for free and not to take money even though it's offered or that they shouldn't even speak to Like, I, I don't understand what the, the demand is here. Yeah. Um, so I'm hopeful for, like, a broader conversation about exactly, like, what, what people are recommending or suggesting could be done different, but, it, you know, it looks like um they're not doing anything different than than what yeah, everybody else done is before doing. I mean, certainly they yeah certainly they have a lot to say
1: it does worry me that they continue to seem to be held to a different standard right i mean we saw that happen for the last 8 years when they were actually in the white house and i don't know why any of us thought it would change after that um, because it certainly hasn't. I do think, like Sam is saying, there is a broader conversation to be had about what our public officials broadly are expected to do once they leave public office. How we want, how we would like for them um, to do their work, but there's also the recognition that these folks are private citizens and that it is up to them to dictate um, how they want to make a contribution. And I think that beyond speeches, there is far more that we will see from the Obamas, and so I'm excited about that.
3: There are, Brittany, you said something that that I. Keep playing back in my head I don't think I've heard you say it like this before but the idea of taking money now so you can do things for free later Mm -hmm. I think is like a real thing
1: no it's very real and it
3: made me think too about like this push that is happening right now with some people to become martyrs right that like it's like What and Sam, to your point, what are people supposed to do, right? Like, is it are you supposed to be a pauper so that you can say that you are like pure and committed to the work, Um, or are you supposed to be compensated for your work at a? That's right. In the context of a market that we live in, in that way, we are going to talk about capitalism and (laughs) neoliberalism at some point for people who are listening and are probably sending me emails and Brittany and Sam PowerPoint presentations. Okay, I'll say my two. So one is the Donald Trump interview where he says. Uh, that this is harder than he thought it would be.
1: I thought it was gonna be so much easier than my last job. You're like, what? <laughs>
3: uh, everybody in America thought this was hard, right? Like, every you are the only person. I found, and what a, I found a
1: meme of Nene Leakes looking like, what? And that was the only one that could describe how I was feeling like, when I read that. What?
3: The only one. Everybody in America thought this was a really hard job. <laughs> you were like, who, It'll be fine. who knew that? And so, yeah, so we're gonna play uh, that clip of him. Uh, saying that so you can hear it. I loved my previous life. I loved my previous life. I had so many things going. I, I I, actually,
5: this is more work than in my previous life. I thought it would be easier. I thought it was more of a, I'm a details-oriented person. I think you would say that. But I do miss
3: my old life. This, I like to work, so that's not a problem. But this is actually more work. But I was just shocked <laughs> like, that that is even a thing. <laughs> I,
1: I want to be shocked, and yet I don't like. I'm not shocked, right? Because we we've had these conversations the whole time leading up to this. It was like, does he really want this job, so or does surprising. he want the W in his column? Like it just kind of felt like he wanted no, the win right. and not the gig. And I'm like, I'm kind of like. If you don't want the job, and a whole bunch of us don't want you to have the job, then like, can you just not have the job? Can yeah,
3: we just and, move on? Take everybody with you, though. <laughs> right. right let's just do, Just We go. don't want Pence either. Exit.
1: Like, right. Fire the whole
3: cabinet. Right. Have it just everybody. Pence. And then resign, be the last person <laughs> right. to resign. And we just
1: have a whole new election. Yeah. And we can just do, Tell have Gorsuch, a do-over. it was a mistake. We need an American do-over. An Am- we need an American an Am- I do-over. Like an
3: American do-over. <laughs> Sam? Yeah, you
0: said everything that needs to be said. Okay. We need an American
1: do-over. <laughs> <laughs> Bottom line. Done. Second, that should be the name of this America, episode. Right. American, American do-over. do-over. I like that.
3: 100 days, American do-over. Um, second thing be the 2020 campaign theme. Right. There it is. American start do-over. again. Right.
1: <laughs> hey, hey, America, we didn't get it right the first time. Start Let's try again.
3: again. Uh, Make America Radio, start again. That's good. Um, the second is ICE. So people don't know that in the 2009 House Appropriations Bill, There's a clause that requires ICE to detain a minimum of 34,000 people a day. Mm. It's why ICE detains so many people across the country. And ICE actually cannot – doesn't have the uh, facilities to detain that many people. So what they do that people don't know is that they actually rent out local jails and prisons. And in California, there's a bill that is working to limit the funding for jails with uh, ICE – and that's interesting legislation to look at. It's stuff that we hope uh, can be replicated all across the country, because what will be really powerful is if cities and towns uh, band together to make sure their mayors and city councilmen yeah. don't uh, enter into these contracts. And it will effectively mean that ICE just can't detain as many people, which we think is a net benefit for uh, immigrants.
1: Will we actually be sure that ICE won't detain as many people or will they find even worse conditions for it to detain people in? That's what I'm worried about. That's that a good sometimes question. you know, we often have, you know I had this conversation a lot right yeah. that we battle to tear certain things down, but we have to make sure that we're building things in its place that are better for people. And I worry that sometimes we're so focused on tearing particular things down that we're not thinking ahead and looking around the corner and saying, then where will people actually end up? So I agree with you that it's important to take this on, yeah. but that means we have to be proactive about how we help folks redirect that.
3: Now I think that's fair, Sam.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, to your point, Brittany, they'll have to build up some other facilities, right? The problem is with ICE, you know, they're not actually getting the kind of funding that they, even even to do the types of things that Trump wants them to do right now, let alone to do it without being able to use the facilities like local jails yeah. uh, to house, you know, undocumented folks. And so, you know, I think it could be a strategy around uh, just pushing them, pushing ICE and making it harder for them to do their job and sort of, Figuring out where those weak points are, so that you can actually uh, sort of grind, put throw something in the throw sand in the gears of the system, right?
4: Yeah. Um, and I
0: think that's where the strategy makes sense. I mean, you know, what would ICE do in that situation is a good question. And, and you know, I hope what they don't do is sort of create, you know, these tent encampments or some sort of, right? You know, essentially what would be internment camps to to house people at low cost. I think that that is a huge. You know, risk and and certainly wouldn't put it past this administration.
3: And what we know to be true too is that systems break in pieces, right? They rarely Mm -hmm. come crumbling down all at once. Mm -hmm. So, trying to think about could this be a lever that we use as like a a piece of a strategy? And I think, Brittany, your push is fair that this is not a long-term strategy, right? Right. That like just making sure they don't enter into contracts at the local level is not is not actually detaining less people, right? Right. Because the reality is that we need to change that 2009 the clause in 2009 House Appropriations that makes ICE the only law enforcement agency with a minimum quota, which is Wild. Which is wild, right? Wild. The, the
1: idea that I have to have so many people detained—I mean, that is the same kind of um, ideology that was at play in Ferguson, right? That like there are quotas and minimums that right. folks have to satisfy in order to collect revenue off the backs of people,
3: and it's a law at the federal level. Exactly. It's not even like
1: a it, right. A this is room, so, Ferguson exactly. police
3: department problem. Exactly.
1: So multiply Ferguson times hundred thousand, and you've got what we are dealing with in terms of this immigration policy or this minimum policy, this quota policy that you're talking about, and that to me, is what is incredibly dangerous. Ann Coulter um, found uh, a, a Time magazine cover with a number of undocumented immigrants on the front and said, there's no American alive who wouldn't want all of these people deported. And I was like, Hey, girl. Uh, do not speak for me ever in your life, because there's nothing. I missed that. We can agree. I miss yeah, she did it story. the other day. She did it the other day, and and so the the idea that there is a minimum, right? I think unfortunately, a lot of people would celebrate, right? They'd say, "We want to get these folks out of here, build the wall, keep our country safe." Blah 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 blah. Um, all of these anti-immigrant sentiments um, that this kind of policy feeds into.
3: Yeah. And it's important to note that this is not actually just a policy. It is the law. So, this yeah. is, so people criticized President Obama for beta- detaining so many people or ICE so many people because it came up in 2009. But the reality is it was the law. It wasn't actually a policy yet, uh, in the department of anything.
1: It's also a reminder why, of why we need to get uh, local law enforcement out of the business of enforcing immigration law, yep. because that is how folks are detained every single day.
3: Brittany, Sam, y'all are incredible. And thanks for my two cents today.
2: Don't go anywhere.
3: More pots of the people's coming.
2: In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened, but soon a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to
4: Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.
3: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp.
4: Now, what's the first
3: thing that you'd do if you had a ton of extra time in a day? Maybe I'd take a nap, go for a run talk to some friends. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time, but the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Now, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, help you process the world around you, help you think through the most important things, how you spend your time, where you spend your energy, especially your emotional energy. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com people. And now my conversation with United States Senator Cory Booker. Corey Booker, thank you so much for joining on the first episode of Pod Save the People. It was recently your birthday. You are now 48. Is that correct?
6: I am. I am. And thanks for giving me this privilege, man, of being uh, one of the first people on your show.
3: Oh, I appreciate it. What'd you do for your birthday?
6: Um, I ate. Uh, I'm a (laughs) vegan and I basically sought out uh, all the vegan restaurants I could find in the tri-state area and ate.
3: How long have you been a vegan?
6: I've been a vegetarian since 1992 hmm. and just recently became a vegan in 2014.
3: Got it. Okay. I think I heard you talk about that on on something, but here we go. Um, first question, though. A lot of things I ask you. I'll start with the simple ones first. Are you going to run for president?
6: Uh, no, that's not my plan. And, and I frankly think that I, I'm sus- – I think anybody who says they're running for president is suspect right now. We need to be focused on the job at hand. That's three – Plus years away, we need to be focused on working, on resisting, on fighting, on making progress for our country. Uh, I think leaders got to be about serving and uh, about a purpose, and not seeking a position. And so, I think it's it's just foolish uh, to be focused on something like that right now.
3: And what do you make of the first hundred days of Trump? It has been, in in many ways, a confetti of crises. Uh, there's been a lot of uh, fear on the left. There's been a lot of consternation and certainly a lot of protest. What is your reflection on these
6: hundred days? Well, I think that anyone who had hope uh, that he was somehow going to be elected and pivot to trying to find common ground, trying to unify this country, um, clearly that's not the case. And I, I, I look at things through the lens of, you know, the state of New Jersey, frankly, but also, look, I go home every uh, every week, uh, you know, and 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 during the recesses, I'm in Newark, New Jersey, and and I have a litmus test, like you know, is he making the lives of working people better? And and the truth of the matter is, this has been a presidency that has been an assault on the middle class, on working class, on folks who are struggling, uh, on everything from what he's doing environmentally. Uh, to making it harder for retirees to save for retirement, his assault on the health care of uh, tens of millions of Americans, but not just on the health care of individual Americans, his assaults on urban hospitals, on rural hospitals. Uh, this is a guy who has been uh, what, from public education, frankly, uh, to what Jeff Sessions is doing in the Justice Department. Um, I, I don't see anything he's doing helping people that are struggling and fighting uh, to, to make their For their American dream, and if anything, I see him favoring very powerful interests uh giving uh, advantage to uh wealth and power um, in a way that completely belies what he said he was going to do in his campaign so it's been a it 's been a frustrating uh uh time, but a confirmation in t- in many ways of my biggest concerns about this presidency, and it 's just made. Me, you know, uh, really in in a position that I'm I'm focused on fighting and I'm focused on protecting folks in this country, as well as uh, continuing to look for opportunities where we can still put points on the board uh, for Americans. And how do you do that as a senator?
3: Like, what does that mean when you think about the rest of uh, this term, or just the rest of this year? I'm hoping I'm hoping that he's not going to be he's not going to fulfill a whole term that something happens with Russia or something else. Uh, But, but what does it mean for you to fight and resist as a senator, given that the party's not in power right now?
6: Well, look, the Senate, the the rules of the Senate, people should know um, that while they have been changed for things like Supreme Court justices, uh, where they changed the rules of the Senate, where you no longer uh, can filibuster, therefore you don't need 60 votes. It could just be a 50 vote majority. But unlike the house, most major things in the senate don't don't get done by majority vote they take a larger percentage usually a 60 vote uh, majority and the republicans don't have 60 votes and there's a few moderates that often will jump on our side uh, on issues and so that gives each individual senator a lot of power to stop the trump agenda and so if he this week can get his health care bill through the house he will have a very very difficult job getting it through the Senate, where the only way they could do that would be if eight Democrats uh, came over. And I just don't see that happening given what I know about this bill. So in the Senate, it's, it's the front line of the fight uh, for resisting uh, the most difficult um, uh, things that the Trump administration wants to do. Now, that doesn't mean we're not going to lose, but I'm going to be one of those people that wants to shine a spotlight on what he's trying to do because I've also seen in this first 100 days How both the media can win points, Jeff Sessions recusing himself, uh, Flynn uh, resigning, and how the public at large, by protesting, by showing up at at, at town halls, by letting their voices get heard, they can stop things in their tracks from the House trying to remove the independent um, uh, ethics oversight all the way to this recent health care legislation, which I chalk. That stopping the first round, at least stopping in the House, Mm -hmm. I chalk that up to individual Americans digging in and fighting a bill that would have done irreparable harm and damage to our economy, uh, to working class folks, uh, to to, to low income folks, uh, to health care in America as we know it.
3: And to talk about Sessions, I'll talk about health care in a bit, but... Uh, you are the first senator in history, I believe, to testify against a Senate colleague f- who was up for confirmation. That is true, right?
6: That is that is true as I know it. Yes,
3: true as I know it too. Now, a uh, hundred days in, or not really a hundred days for sessions, but uh, this this checkpoint in, uh, do you stand by your uh, testimony that he was going to be a detriment to the safety and security of the country? Uh, Have those fears been substantiated? Do you think that your actions were warranted? What's your reflection on Sessions, uh, given the time that he's been in office so far?
6: Well, uh, almost exactly what I was saying was going to happen is happening right now. I mean, here you have states like North Carolina on voting rights, uh, where the the federal judge says, with surgical precision, I think that's the exact quote, they were designing a law to disenfranchise African-Americans where the Justice Department used to be part of that case, you now have the Justice Department pulling out of voting rights uh, uh, efforts to, to, to secure voting rights. On police accountability at a time where you even have the director of the FBI talking about the persistence of implicit racial bias and the effect it has often in policing. What I saw as a mayor when i When I confronted the data of race and policing, thanks to the Justice Department, you now have Jeff Sessions criticizing those consent decrees and trying to pull back on them. When it comes to private prisons, I mean this is a if if, if you saw what has happening to private prison stock going through the roof in, increasing, it's because Jeff Sessions is now ex, uh, in, in favor of reversing obama era policies and expanding uh, up, um, the usage of of private prisons. so Literally, so many of the things I talked about, about him being someone who was going to undermine civil rights and voting rights and police accountability uh, um, uh, and immigrants' rights, all of these things are coming to pass. Gay and lesbian, uh, uh, bisexual, transgender rights. So this is a very problematic era, uh, I think, uh, of the Justice Department being run by someone who told us before he was taking that position the statements he made as a senator and before, what he stood for, how he was counter uh, to everything from the Matthew Shepard hate crime legislation to the Violence Against Women's Act, if you look at his Senate record, you knew exactly what he would be doing as a U.S. attorney. And now in these early months, um, he's already changing policy. So I don't regret it one bit. It, it It was not an easy stance to take. It had consequences in terms of my, my relationships with Republicans who are essential. Frankly, you've got to work across the aisle to get significant things done in this place. But I, I could not be silent when I heard what was happening and, and, and what I saw, where I knew things would go. And the last thing I'll say is it, it just so happened that when I testified, I was sitting next to John Lewis, who was a guy who literally bled for civil rights, literally had his head busted open for voting rights and 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 to see what he went through and how he could not remain silent, um what I did was small compared to what that giant has been doing all his life and for me it it it, 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 it was a call to my conscience I, I had to do what i did
3: now you I remember being in meetings at at the White House uh at the beginning of the protests, when we were pushing for criminal justice reform, and yeah it was an imperfect set of set of legislation, uh, but it was an important step forward, and it seems that that has all but stalled. Is that true?
6: um you know I've I've had conversations literally within the last uh, uh, week with officials in the White House um, taking temperature and having conversations with my Republican colleagues. You know, there's still going to be an effort, and and there I, is. I'm, well, I don't know about I don't know if we'll have a partner in the White House, but I'm definitely going to try, and um, I'm I'm not going to presume that this White House won't do it. And I've heard some things. Uh, you know, Jared Kushner. You know, I know what his father's uh, um, advocacy. I mean, in fact, it was it was my first trip to Rikers Island was with. Uh, uh charlie kushner who, who who having been in prison himself, knew how messed up the system was hmm. and and so i I know there's there's hope and and as long as there's hope i'm going i'm going to keep trying to expand that hope we have a We have a criminal justice system that is so abhorrently against our values as a nation um, in so many ways it it preys upon the most vulnerable people in our country. Um, the the, the mentally ill, the victims of of sexual abuse, uh, poor people, people of color, what it does to you when you're inside of that system is, again, a violation of our values. Uh, It is cementing uh, 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 disparities of race and socioeconomic status. And we've got to keep fighting, got to keep trying. And even though it doesn't look (laughs) uh, uh, optimal, um, even to make gain an inch of ground right now um, um, is going to make a difference to people suffering at the hands of this system, and so I'm going to do everything I can, even with Donald Trump as president, uh, to try to to try to make some progress in this Congress.
3: Was there a piece of the, the criminal justice reform legislation that you thought uh, was either the most significant, would be the biggest lever, or should be the first piece of the puzzle that we go after?
6: Well, no. I mean, I have. I have numerous pieces of legislation, some of them with wide bipartisan support, like uh ban the box legislation, helping people who are who have paid their debt uh uh to society to not be sort of get an effective bar from jobs, all the way to ending juvenile solitary confinement, which many of our peer nations call torture, what we do to children. So I, I don't I don't think there's one magic piece that we have to lead with. This should be an all out assault on all the deficiencies uh, and the the, uh, the 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 aspects of the system that are anathema to who we say we are as a nation, and so look, there's just things that are make no sense. Like the, when we change the crack uh, uh, um, powder cocaine disparity from 100 to one to 18 to one. By the way, that's indefensible. It being 18 to one, science says it's the same substance, but 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 it's it changed 18 to one. So there's still people in rotting in prison right now, uh, in horrible conditions under the 101 because they didn't make it retroactive. Now that means you have people in prison today that are watching people who did more of a crime than they did in terms of the weight of the substance coming in and out of prison while they're just sitting there. Or one of the bills I had with Chuck Grassley, Chairman of the Judiciary Committee, um, uh, a bipartisan bill would have addressed that, let hundreds and hundreds of people who are being held unjustly out of prison uh, for that alone. So there are so many aspects of this That we all have to keep fighting uh, uh, on many different fronts of this broken system uh, to get to the point where we can be a nation. I'm sitting a couple hundred yards from the Supreme Court where it says in, in that building, equal justice under the law. We swear an oath, all of us, to this idea of liberty and justice for all, but we are not living that as a country. So none of us can give up. Uh, until we make our system re- reflect what we what what is part of our civic gospel as a country,
3: and how I hear you talk about criminal justice reform, health care, and a host of issues. Uh, how is your understanding of these issues uh, informed by the reality that you are one of ten black people ever to serve in the United States Senate? Uh, you are a black man who is a mayor of a majority black city, uh, and that you're a black man who lives in in a country that has been plagued by racism for, um, for centuries, how, how does that inform your understanding of these issues and your role uh, in the Senate?
6: Well, look, I, I was raised by incredibly patriotic parents who wanted to let me know that my blackness uh, and the liberties I enjoyed in this country were derived from an enormous struggle, enormous suffering, e- e- enormous will, indomitable will. And and understanding that as an American, understanding that as an African American, uh, um, it 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 comes with an, uh, it should come with a sense of urgency, knowing that I drink from wells of freedom and liberty and opportunity that I didn't dig, um, knowing that that we are all, as King said, you know, caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a common garment of destiny. So, from my very earliest days, I, I, I remember being brought up by these proud, patriotic, uh, unapologetically black parents who, who wanted my brother and I to, to understand that we owed a debt we couldn't pay back, that we had to pay forward. Literally, the day I swore my oath down here, my mom made sure we went to see John Lewis as the last thing I did before I went <laughs> to, to the Senate leader and get sworn in by uh, uh, the vice president, and to sit there... Before a man who, who, would, who was so humble in, in how he treated me, you could see it in his eyes, th- this sense of pride that I would be the fourth African-American popularly elected to the United States Senate in the history of this country. And then my mom lectures me. I don't know if any United States senator-to-be would get a mom lecturing them all the way to get, get sworn in as we walk through these hollow hallways. She's like, don't get distracted down here. There's an urgency you know, I make it. made it. make it a decision. My entire professional life, I've lived in this Newark, New Jersey, and and, and I still live in a place where it, that is rich with character, rich with a uh, 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 spirit. But you know, the median income in, in my census tract is fourteen thousand uh, uh, dollars uh, uh, per household, and and my community. was hanging out. You know, I gave a woman a ride, a couple of women block a ride home from. From Chipotle last night on Market Street, back to my place. You know, these are folks who are good, hardworking people who who are still experiencing in America where we haven't lived up to our hopes and dreams for this country, and who remind me every single day that there is an urgent work to do. And and so that's really who I am. I, I define my patriotism. I define my faith as a Christian. I define my blackness in the sense of a of a continuous struggle to make this country live up to who we say we are, uh, the fullness to become that more perfect union. And I'm proud uh, of our history of you know, blacks and whites, Christians, Jews, struggling, sweating, dying together in this understanding that uh, the, the, the call of this country is, is urgent and demanding. And it, and, it, and it does frustrate me at times that many of us luxuriate, and I've done this at times, we luxuriate in the blessings of this country and we forget that urgent obligation that there is, as long as there are people suffering injustice, especially at the hands of our government. Then, then, then we have so much work to do, uh, and and that's what drives me down here. And, and and I can't walk onto the floor of the Senate and not feel that gravity of history. I can't stand on the floor of the Senate uh, with with a darker hue and a, and a, and a, and and having come through the Black American experience and not recognize that 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 so many did so much to get me to the point where I could be there uh, and have the privilege of serving my country and my state but god i i I feel this sense of of unfinished business. I feel the sense that we have work to do to make us the great nation that I know we are, I know we have the potential of being, uh, but just like my grandparents and 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 and, and great grandparents uh and, and that of so many other Americans from so many different backgrounds, uh, we've got to honor that legacy of of struggle that we inherited and, and to continue to fight.
3: I love my blackness and yours cinder Booker um, you, now. Uh, let's talk about a couple issues that I've heard you talk about before, but I want to just understand them better. So uh, pharmacy, I remember when there were some non-binding resolutions and you voted against one um, that would have allowed Canadian imports, but didn't have a mechanism to guarantee safety.
6: And well, that, that, that's wrong. And I, Duray, I'm sorry, to, to, just the way you phrased that because this caused a blow up in my life that I never expected I'd be dealing with where a non-binding resolution on the floor that would have allowed for nothing, would have changed no law, would have changed nothing. It was really a a messaging amendment on the floor that didn't include consumer safety. And I'm a guy that's always believed that we should have imports. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's, it's nothing new. This is something that I'd always believed beforehand. And even when that the, the amendments were being done late at night, this is like one, two, three o'clock in the morning, Uh, There was a bunch of us who always believed in imports who were saying, hey, put some things about consumer safety. Because the reality is, is if we were able to eventually pass a law and it didn't have consumer safety, that means in America, if you buy a drug, it has to have track and trace technology. So if you fall into a seizure from some pill you took, you can know exactly the origins of that. But we don't want Canadian drugs to come into our country that you couldn't track and trace. Or you didn't want some rogue pharmacy that doesn't sell drugs to Canadians, but just pops up for the intention of subverting Canadian law and our law and selling drugs here. So just common sense consumer protections. So I voted against a non-binding resolution that if it passed would have achieved nothing because of my positions on, on consumer protections. And, and then the internet blew up, <laughs> but <laughs> it did blow I up. I went Right. That's an understatement. <laughs> and, and then I went and, and, and in many ways, and by the way, you and you may have noticed, but a lot of it was not about the 12 or 13 Democrats. Can't remember who voted against it. it was Cory Booker a lot of it, and um, other Democrats, which was shocking to me because again, I had been for imports consistently before that. And so what I did is talk to Senator Sanders, who said, "Like you know what? Let's take my bill from the last Congress, work together to add consumer protections in it." And by the way, pick up Democrats that weren't on his bill the last time. So now we have a strong bill, Senator Sanders and me and Senator Casey, uh, uh, to lower prescription drug costs. And then I joined with Senator uh, Franken uh, because when I go home to Newark, people are concerned about drug prices. It's ridiculous that I sat in a diner in, 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 right next to my city and listened to people who aren't taking their, didn't take their mental health uh, uh, prescription drugs because they were worried about affording rent. That's a crazy situation in our country that people aren't staying healthy because of the outrageous cost of prescription drugs. So I joined with Senator Franken on his bill, which included language from, from, from my previous bill with Senator Sanders, to give a more comprehensive effort to lower prescription drug prices. So for me, again, you know, my entire life <laughs> has been working in uh, up until the last three and a half years, I've had the privilege of representing all of New Jersey. But I, I've been working in communities and neighborhoods, fighting battles, representing uh, uh, tenant organizations against slumlords, fighting uh, uh, in neighborhoods that many folks have, were maligning or afraid of, sitting in the trenches with great Americas, great community leaders, working on these issues against powerful interests, whether it was the mortgage lending uh, 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 companies that did horrible damage to our, our, our city. Uh, whatever the powerful interests are, moneyed interests, my focus has always been in the trenches, in the fights in Newark up to the last three years for my state. I'm down here working for Americans, working for New Jerseyans, but particularly I'm working for people who are still getting the raw end of the deal in America. And so this is an issue that really, uh, frankly, ticked me off that my position would get perverted uh, and I'd end up getting attacked for it as opposed to. Uh, The truth of the matter is I was happy that a lot of bloggers, even progressive bloggers, Looked at the substance of the bills that I've written and said, you know, this is a stronger bill uh, that has consumer protections, and and that's where I stand. And I'm sorry to go on about it, Darae, longer than than I probably should have.
3: <laughs> no, no, I'm maybe you cleared it up. And and the the bill that you ultimately agreed on with uh, Sanders does include, like you noted, it does include the the protect the safety protections for imports. So it looks like in the end it worked out. I, I do think that you got beat up on the internet at the beginning, uh, and I and I'm, I wanted to talk about it because. Um, I'm not sure people saw the full circle of that issue with regard to your stance. Now, I saw you tweet a video recently about uh, the immigration, the ICE quota.
6: Yeah, I mean, look, the, 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 you know, again, this is a powerful private interests that I think are subverting what is best interest of our country and private prisons. To me, I do not understand how we as a society can support just philosophically. A, a putting a profit motive into the taking away the liberty of other human beings, the incarcerating of human beings as being a part of a profit motive. It, it's problematic to me. But then if you just want to look at objectively what's the best use of taxpayer dollars, private prisons on the whole have worse safety records than than, than public prisons. But more than that, even protecting the officers that work in prisons, they have worse records, health records and the like. So when Trump Came in and started hinting towards raising a quota. By, by the way, the fact that we even have a quota for how many of these private prison beds should be filled is offensive to me. For those
3: of it's you not- who are listening and don't know, there's a, a 2009 House Appropriations Bill quota in it for ICE has to detain a minimum of 34,000 people a day, and that is what Senator Booker is talking about.
6: Right, and that's not letting policy or safety or 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 some kind of higher end fuel our immigration policy. This is letting the commitment to private institutions that you would fill these beds with human beings drive our ultimate immigration policy. And if not, the taxpayers pay a penalty for that. That to me is just, it's unconscionable and unacceptable.
3: Now, as we close, a couple of uh, of questions to get us out. First is there are a lot of people who don't believe in the government right now, because in in their eyes, the government has failed them in so many ways. They tried, they went to the meetings, they they called their senator, they petitioned the city council, and it didn't work, right? So people are withdrawing in some parts of the country. Now, what do you say to those people who did try, who did show up, and the government still hasn't done right by them?
6: Well, look at our history. How many times, just let's pick civil rights for a second. How many times did people have to try and then fail on civil rights? In fact, they even passed legislation. We, we had 19, civil rights legislation in the 1950s that proved inadequate. And, and so those folks facing lynching, facing discrimination to the point where you just looking at people the wrong way, you have to flee town. And, and, and under those unconscionable conditions, talk about government oppression, under those unconscionable conditions, they did not give up. They did not lose heart. They kept fighting, finding more creative ways to push forward. And so us in our time, how can we, given the history of what it took to get workers' rights, what it took to get women's rights, the, 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 lo- the lives that were literally lost at the hands of government, we lost lives in all of those movements, but yet people still kept fighting even though it meant them losing their livelihoods and their lives, seeing setbacks and, and beatdowns, but still kept getting up and pushing forward. So please don't give up. It, it's an affront to the history that we share, that, this, that this, the progressive movement in this country has never given up and kept fighting no matter what the obstacles or what the odds. And, and, and again, I, I hate to, keep, to keep, take things all the way back to Newark, uh, um, but i learned so much from my community. I always say I got my BA from Stanford, but my PhD in the streets of Newark. And what I love about my city is that, you know, folk gave up. People left. We lost half our population. People uh, 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 demeaned and degraded uh, uh, Newark and used it as the butt of jokes. But But folks never gave up on that, our city. Kept fighting, kept pushing. And, and now we're starting to see... First time in 60 years, our city's growing again. We're seeing our schools start to start to thrive. We're we're seeing opportunities start to expand because people just kept their hands on the plow, and no matter what other people said, no matter what other people did, no matter how big the obstacles. It was their love that kept them going, love of uh, of of each other, love of your neighbor, love of your love of humanity, love of America. And so, please, you know, for the love of country keep fighting now is more than ever when we need those people who are frustrated we need those people who are 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 getting discouraged those are the very people we need in this country that are going to make the difference because if we surrender the space then we then we then we allow the very things we're fighting against to win uh, to take deeper root and so please please we we've seen how progress is hard hard it's difficult it takes sacrifice but but yet we are still a nation that shows what king said so beautifully that the arc of the universe is long but it bends towards justice now i one of those people to tell you it doesn't bend automatically Mm-hmm. we've got to be the benders. We've got to be the benders. So please keep, keep being out there. Keep bending.
3: And three pieces of advice to people who
6: want to run for office.
3: So we've seen the huge spike in people who now understand uh, or, or want to understand electoral politics as a site and a way to build power. You have run for office. You've won. You run for office. You've lost. What are three pieces of advice or lessons that you'd offer uh, to people who are thinking about
6: office? Look, we could do a, a whole podcast on just that. And, and, uh, I, this is something that I was afraid to do when I first ran, and I, I'm going to use that word. I had a lot of fear because I was a 20-something-year-old young guy. So I was living in the projects in a tough neighborhood in Newark, and and, and a whole bunch of tenant leaders and folks uh, said to me, we got to do something about this. It was crazy stuff that was going on back then in the late 90s that was just unacceptable, and I was f- afraid. I had a nice... You know, I was a public interest lawyer representing people. I thought I had a nice career path all planned out for myself. So the three pieces of advice, and again, there's a lot more tactical stuff I'd like to talk to you about, but do it, do it, do it. And even if you lose, have confidence that you can change the conversation, that you can affect uh, uh, circumstances. And I'll end with just this idea. I wrote this quote in, in the book I wrote because it's been so true for me. It's this definition of faith that, that says when you come to the end of all the light you know and you're about to step into the darkness of the unknown, the uncertain, uh, you're about to dive into something, uh, that faith is knowing one of two things will happen. Either you're going to find solid ground underneath you, or the universe will send you people who will teach you how to fly. We need people that are willing to step into the darkness of, uh, of tough Politics with entrenched interests, with people that are just so ready to beat you down. Uh, I faced it. They're going to call you too young. Wait your turn. Uh, um, uh, you don't know nothing about nothing. But if you believe in yourself that you have something to offer, take a dive into that darkness. And I promise you, and DeRay, you're living evidence of this. I promise you, you're going to find out solid ground underneath you, or the universe is going to use your energy and your momentum, and you're going to take off Uh, and help to lift others as well. So please, we need more good people uh, um, who have a a spirit for justice uh, uh, to to get into the actual process of governance at the local level, at the county level, at the state level, at the federal level. Please run.
3: Senator Booker, thank you for joining me on the first episode of Pod Save the People. I'm excited for you to come back where we'll talk about education and a host of other issues. Again, thanks for coming.
6: Thank you very much, Dorey. Bye-bye.
3: Hey, you're listening to Potsy of the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come.
1: As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform. It's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef
4: Brooke Williamson and I use Made in Cookware.
1: With my busy life, I use Shipped same-day delivery to keep up. When I need a jar of extra creamy peanut butter delivered, I know my personal shopper, Amber, will come through. And if it's not on the shelf, she asks them to check the back. Shipped, Delight in every delivery. Learn more at ships.com.
4: Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley. With premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.
3: And now to my interview with Andy Slavitt. But the beginning will be a brief word from Trayvon Free, former writer with The Daily Show and a current writer with Samantha B. Today at nine, I'm talking to Andy Slavitt, who used to be the head of Obamacare, and we're gonna demystify. We're gonna demystify healthcare. Woo-hoo! But today, we were talking about uh, the John Dickerson interview yeah. with Donald Trump, yeah, who is a liar, very much, and John Dickerson probably was the best interviewer of a liar. I think that he didn't know. I mean, I think he knew a lot about healthcare actually, but I think it was interesting. Trump just kept coming back to like. He's like, are you guaranteeing pre-existing conditions? And Trump was like, "Obamacare failed." And you're like, well, that, that actually wasn't the question. It's like, well, do you guarantee it? He's like, you know, it doesn't work. Obamacare.
7: Well, the the thing about Trump is, he's like the worst type of car sales used car salesman. He's the worst type of used car salesman. You mean? Where it's like you don't need a new thing. But he's going to try to sell you a new thing and tell you it's better than the thing you already have. So like, you show up with your Chevy and he's like, I think you need this Lexus because your Chevy's shit. And you're like, no, my Chevy's fine. Uh, It runs fine. He's like, but your Chevy doesn't have good gas. And you're like, I came here with a full tank of gas. My Chevy works just fine. And uh, I forget the other part. You said something that uh, was and really the funny. Lexus
3: is like mythical in this situation. Yes, that's the thing. That's the,
7: thing. <laughs> the Lexus so, is like actually rigged to also, explosives. The Lexus will kill you. Right. right. Like not only the like, will the Lexus kill you, it'll kill you and 24 million other people when you drive it.
3: Yes. No <laughs> airbags. No, and immediate implosion.
7: The seats are made of spikes. <laughs> <laughs> so when you get into this Lexus, it's it's going to kill you. But no matter how much you tell him that, yeah, my Chevy has a few dings and it's got it's got good mileage on it but it gets me where I need to go and it's still reliable and yeah it could be better this guy's going to tell you but it's not this Lexus and even though i can't guarantee you that this Lexus won't kill you i still think you should drive it
3: so, joining me today is a conversation about healthcare with Andy Slavitt, who is best known for running Obamacare for the last three years. He spent 20 years in the healthcare industry, in the private sector, started a healthcare company, and is probably most widely known, if not by name, but by his deed, because he was the turnaround king of healthcare.gov when it crashed. He helped bring it back together. His official title was the acting administrator of the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services. Andy, thanks for joining me today.
5: Great to be here, DeRay.
3: So, I'd love to just start out with the basics. Medicare and Medicaid, can you define them?
5: Sure. Medicaid is the largest healthcare program in the world. Uh, It takes care of about 70 million people in the U.S. And what it's most known for is being a program that's there for people who are both in the, whether they're low income or in the later years of life. Uh, Today, Medicaid is such an important part of the fabric of our country Half of the kids in the u s are born to the are paid for by the Medicaid program, and half of the seniors who are in long-term care are paid for by Medicaid. So it's an incredibly important program.
3: half of the half of the kids born in the country are paid for by Medicaid? That's right.
5: And the millions and millions of people that live on disabilities every year, if you wonder how they get their health care paid for, which is which is incredibly intensive, also paid for by the Medicaid program. So an incredibly important program. Uh, by far the largest line item of, of any state, and a really, really successful program.
3: So, Medicaid is a federal program. It's funded by the federal government, but administered by the states. Is that right?
5: Yep, the federal government provides a match somewhere in the sixty to seventy percent of the funds, and the state comes up with the with the with the rest.
3: And the state has to. It's not a choice. That's right. And how old is Medicaid?
5: Medicaid and Medicare were both passed in 1965. By Lyndon Johnson. So we're bo- they're both 51, 52 years old.
3: Got it. Okay. And now Medicare. Sorry, you, I cut you off just no to problem. get back on track.
5: Med- Medicare is really the program that we all pay into that takes care of our health care needs once we turn 65. Medicare is arguably one of the most successful uh, social programs in our country. It's got near 90%. Um, satisfaction rate, which I don't know anything that has that level of satisfaction rate. And <laughs> Medicare is responsible, really responsible for transforming what it's like to be old in this country. Before Medicare, one in three seniors lived in poverty. And after Medicare today, that number is far less than one in 10.
3: And what does people living in poverty have to do with Medicare?
5: Well, when you get old, you get sick. And it used to be before... Medicare, that when you got sick, you had to have some sort of private insurance or you had to rely on family to pay for your medical care. And medical care is so expensive that it's actually, uh, historically, before the ACA, the leading cause of personal bankruptcy. So when people have a program like Medicare, like Medicaid, or like the ACA, it really provides a lot more financial security in their lives and it prevents the major shocks, a major medical bill. From really upending their lives.
3: Now, can we talk about access for a second, both to Medicaid and Medicare? Is how does it? What's the breakdown with regard to race? I think there's this idea, right, that people of color are the disproportionate majority of people accessing federal benefits in general. But I'd love to know from an expert what is the truth. Sure.
5: Yeah, I think you're absolutely, you're absolutely right. That is people's perception. Turns out 41% of people on Medicaid are white, and that varies pretty dramatically by states. Uh, with many states, 70, 80%, in fact in West Virginia, 89% of the recipients of Medicaid uh, are white. So I think people tend to associate it with a program for racial minorities, but in fact it's, it actually follows very closely to uh, the patterns in our country.
3: So let me paraphrase back. So Medicaid is for it's for people in poverty,
5: low-income people, well, kids, seniors, low-income people with disabilities. Yep. So
3: low-income seniors, kids in the disability community. That's Medicare, right. everybody's eligible for it when they turn sixty-five, and That's we right. pay into and it.
5: Some special categories: people who need special health care services uh, such as kidney services and otherwise, but for the most part it's safe to think of as really the program for us when we
3: retire. Got it. Okay. Now let's talk about the the Obamacare repeal part ten thousand that we are living through right now. Um, can you talk through what is the GOP plan for repeal? I think even calling it a plan might be a stretch, but what is your understanding of what the impact of Trump care would do if it passed?
5: Sure. I think the I think the main things we ought to look at is how many people does it cover, uh, what does it do to the affordability of coverage, and what does it do to the actual coverage? Because you know the ACA, which which nobody thinks is perfect, did do a lot of things. It covered twenty million new people. Uh, it reduced um, the cost of care so that seventy percent of people can now buy insurance for less than a hundred dollars a month. Uh, it and it sort of dramatically uh, changed the security people have because they can no longer be excluded for pre-existing conditions, they can't be charged more, and uh, there's no caps or gotchas or things. Those are all outlawed. The new plan, the Republican plan, has has a couple of features. One is it it reduces the number of people covered uh, by about 24 million people. Secondly, uh, it raises premiums. uh, by about 15 to 20%, increases deductibles by even more than that, uh, and uh, it, it guts a lot of the protections that we talked about. It, it guts the national protection for pre-existing conditions uh, and other standards. Uh, so you might ask yourself, okay, well, well, why does it do that? Why is it reducing care for people? And, you know, in a nutshell, um, what, it, what it does is it really, it really uses a tax vehicle, and it takes about uh, $800 billion away from the Medicaid program and about $400 billion away from tax credits in the exchanges, and it, and it cuts a very large tax cut for millionaires and corporations like pharmaceutical companies and insurance companies.
3: So there's been a lot of press coverage around the pre-existing condition clause. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that what the ACA did is that it made pre-existing conditions uh, covered as a part of health care, mandated it. Is that correct?
5: That's right. It's no longer legal for you to even be asked what your medical history is. If you want insurance, you can have it regardless of your health status. That's because of the ACA. Got
3: it. And what the latest version that we've seen of the Trump Care is that it would now remove the federal protection and make that uh, up to the states. Is that correct?
5: That's right. So a little bit of the history is, um, in order for Congress to get the most conservative Freedom Caucus members on board, uh, the Freedom Caucus really wanted a couple of important changes. One was they no longer wanted insurance to have to cover the basic essential services. And the second thing they wanted is they wanted uh, there to be able to be people to be charged more if they were sicker. And the way they ended up doing that was they ended up saying that if states sent a waiver request into the federal government, that they could, they could do that. And the, the state, the federal government really doesn't have any or much ability to turn them down. So in effect, it's what I like to call a high five and a wink. They can say, Hey, we haven't taken away the pre-existing condition protections or the essential benefit protections, but of course, as soon as a state says that's what they want to do, insurance companies, uh, will be able to get rid of those rules. And one further thing I think you may have heard Trump talk about the fact that he wants insurance sold across state lines. People have heard him say that. The implication of that would be that if any one state makes that change, any one state that that effectively changes it for all fifty states.
3: Can you give me an example?
5: Sure. So, um, if uh, if a if the state of uh, Missouri says they're going to um, allow insurance companies in Missouri to not cover hospital care, not cover cancer treatment, not cover autism, and to be able to charge people significantly more money, once they say that insurance can be sold across state lines, then companies can all decide that they want to be located in Missouri. Just like today, a lot of companies decide they want to technically be located in Delaware. And all of a sudden, um, you you can end up in a place where coverage isn't available that covers other things. This happened before the ACA very frequently, in fact, I believe in the state of Colorado, you couldn't buy coverage that included a maternity policy. Because uh, states didn't have to, insurance companies didn't have to cover everything.
3: Got it. When you say that uh, some people don't want to cover basic essential services, what are basic essential services?
5: So what the ACA did is it defined something called 10 essential benefits. Uh, And those benefits are... Really the essential things, the common sense you think of, things you think of. Doctor visits, hospital visits, prescription drugs, mental health, surgeries, outpatient surgeries, things like that. There's nothing, there's nothing exotic in there. And the reason they, ACA did that was so that it would be very easy to compare a policy. And if someone was selling you a policy on an exchange, you knew what was in it. You didn't have to read the fine print. You wouldn't end up with people going to the doctor or getting admitted to the hospital, only to find out later that the insurance company wasn't wasn't covering those things. It's an immensely popular part of the ACA because it started to make insurance a little bit more like a commodity. Uh, so, getting rid of that, I think, would be quite a step backwards.
3: And I've heard or I've read about pools. And I've read about them in two ways. One is this idea uh, some transitioning to high-risk pools. I've heard Trump talk about pools for pre-existing conditions. What is a pool? Like, what's a pool in the context of healthcare? If I If I explain it to you, will you promise to explain it to Trump? <laughs> yeah, because that last interview with John Dickerson, it seemed like he was confused as well. So, <laughs> please, can you explain it to me, the American people, and the guy who is currently the president? Yeah,
5: exactly. um so, a uh, high risk pool basically works the following way: is basically say uh, all the people, all the people that uh, are healthy can get insurance uh, through an insurance company, kind of the normal and usual way. Then what, you, what it does is it takes people who are sick, people who maybe they have had cancer or other things, and they say, "You're not eligible for the insurance in this in this uh, through this uh, regular pool." And what that does is it makes the cost of everybody else's insurance go down. But what it does in return is it says, okay, well, how do you help these people get insurance is it puts them into something called a high-risk pool, and a high-risk pool is a pool only for sick people, and they are typically um, very difficult to fund. They typically don't cover all of the same things. They don't have to apply the same rules. Uh, they typically will last only as long as there's money in them, and they're almost always underfunded. In fact, in the history of the country, there's been a number of high-risk pools, and almost all of them have run out of money. And so, you know, in, in, a, in, a, in a very real way, it's saying we're going to have a two-tiered healthcare care system, uh, and we're going to put sick people into this sort of quarantined system. And uh, it's it's not uh, – you know, for a lot of us, people like me, uh, we think that it's a, not only a very inefficient way to do things, but a very inequitable way of doing things. And so uh, there's – there the current plan is enamored of this idea that you can segregate people into this – into these two pools, and uh, it's something that I think uh, people who are around this tend to find both – Problematic, both because it doesn't work very well, but also it's very inequitable.
3: And under the ACA, high risk pools are illegal. Is that correct?
5: There are no high risk pools uh, in the ACA. What what there is is there's there's different other mechanisms um, that I think are very effective at keeping costs down uh, and should be used more uh, at a state level. Uh, Alaska has done this recently. Minnesota has done this recently. They they do something called reinsurance, uh, which is which is, I think, a, a very different kind of tool. But without getting you know, extremely technical, um, you know, this is uh, the, the, you know, treating people differently based upon their health status or their income was something the ACA outlawed. And this would be quite a change and quite a step backwards
3: uh, if that were to change. Yeah, they talk about death panels, but they are trying to make death pools, it seems. Now, pools for people with pre-existing conditions, is that the same idea as high-risk pools?
5: That's right. He, when, when they talk about that, when they talk about pools for people with pre existing conditions, that's really what they mean. It's very synonymous.
3: So, like if I, let me repeat it back to you. So, that means that if I have a pre existing condition today, then when I go sign up for health insurance, it's illegal for my, the provider, uh, the health insurance company, to even ask me about that, correct? That's right. And what this would do is that it would make it illegal for them to ask me about it. And if I do have a pre-existing condition, they could put me. They could separate me from the people who don't have pre-existing conditions.
5: That and, and one more big thing they could do. They can surcharge you a lot more money in certain circumstances. Not in all circumstances, but in certain circumstances, they can look at this and say, uh, you know, Duray, you have high blood pressure, uh, and uh, maybe you had an illness as a kid. Maybe you had... Um, um, childhood diabetes, which you've grown out of. And they, they can turn around and say, um, we're not going to charge you what we charge everybody else, which is what the law is today. We're going to charge you $10,000 more. And uh, for most people, um, that makes insurance prohibitive.
3: Yeah. And this seems like it could actually take us back to the, the point where people are living in poverty because they can't afford health care. Like that is not the, That's not the goal here.
5: That's nope. right. I mean, this is, this is exactly right. You know, I, I frame this when I talk to people as really, we, we're really facing three choices as a country. If, from, if you're 30,000 feet up, uh um, we, we're either talking about moving into, head into to 2017, um where we're continuing to make progress, fix the ACA, work together, uh, decide on practical solutions. We're gonna go back to 2009, which is before the ACA, uh, where we're having people live with pre-existing conditions once again, uh, and go through all of that rigmarole, or the third option, which is I think what the what Trump care is, is taking us all the way back to 1965 by taking the Medicaid program, the one that we talked about earlier, which serves all of the children and 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 in the country and all the all the young families, and cutting the program by 25 percent, and then capping it and saying the federal government. Uh, is going to cap the growth of that program, and that really takes us uh, back to a place where the the very fabric of the healthcare system is changed forever.
3: Now, another thing that I read, and and again push me if I'm if I'm wrong here, is that there would be a change in the way Medicaid is funded. So, and I hope I'm not confusing the two, but is am I correct on that? Yep. And what's the change?
5: Yep. yep. What what they're what they're saying is that instead of uh, today where Medicaid provides for a certain percentage of the state's health care needs uh, and whatever those health care needs are, if you've got greater needs because of opioids or something like the Flint water crisis, um, the federal government continues to provide um, for, that, for those needs, they would say, we're going to stop doing that. We at the federal government are going to draw a line and we're only going to provide the state a certain amount of money, and we're going to put a cap on it. And in a sense, this is ironic because this is the Republicans, in effect, defining the value of a human life. Now, they're only doing it for poorer people. They're not doing it for people with means. But they're saying, this is how much money we're going to give, and if you want to spend more on health care, then that's either going to have to come from the state or it's going to come from the individual. And because states don't raise revenue very often in these climates, what it means is you end up having to cut education, you end up having to cut um, enrollment so that you make it more difficult for people to enroll, and it just means people aren't going to get the health care they need.
3: And that would, again, disproportionately impact uh, the four groups, so low-income, uh, children, the disabled community. And what's the fourth?
5: Um, low-income, disabled, children, uh, and... Um, people with um, who are in in, in, in long-term care
3: long term care forth. sorry okay no you're good okay like nursing,
5: nursing homes would probably be a simpler way for me to explain
3: that got it now uh, the other thing so Trump just did that interview and i'd love to hear your your feedback on the Degregson interview because it was fascinating, um, but what he continues to say, and one of the one of the talking points on the right continues to be this idea that Obamacare has been a big failure, and that this is the way to like that they are in earnest trying to approve it. I mean, improve it. Uh, so, can you talk about like? where where do you think, what, what, what does that mean to you? Sure. And then uh, after that, let's talk about like what would, what's the next step after Obamacare, right? Understanding that it is not a perfect system, but it is better than what we had before. And then if we can imagine in the next 10, 15 years, like what a, an even better health care system would look like.
6: Sure.
5: So the ACA uh, is in really pretty good shape. I think the first few years of the ACA um, about two-thirds of the insurance companies lost money. Uh, part of the reason for that is because people were a little bit sicker, uh, than we thought. Uh, insurance companies raised rates, which for people who are, uh, middle class is problematic and we need to work on that. But for people who are at 400% of the poverty level or below, that's, they're completely protected with tax credits. And if you were to look around the country, you'd say that about 25, in 25 states, the markets are working particularly well. You've got about four states where there's not nearly enough competition, and then you've got a number that are in, in between. Going into this year, um, it's a pretty healthy marketplace, and I think most of the insurance companies, uh, if not all, uh, will be making money. Um, but what, the, what Trump has been doing is he's been holding back, and in effect, sabotaging uh, the law so that uh, it becomes more and more challenging and so that he can make the case that he should get his laws passed, and one of the ways he's been doing that is by holding back um, about eight billion dollars that is that insurance companies have already paid out to in, to low-income individuals, and that's causing insurance companies to want to want to leave. So uh, it's it's both a not true that the that the um, exchanges aren't doing well; the exchanges are doing fine, uh, and b. Uh, the challenges that are coming to the exchanges are coming directly because Trump and the administration uh, are are really um, doing things to purposely hurt the ACA.
3: That's interesting. And one of the things I also heard was this idea um, that the Trump administration was going to give millionaires a, a tax cut through the through the health care plan. How would that happen?
5: That's right. The the um, the this average millionaire would make about have about a $55,000 tax cut. Um, what, what, again, to go back to, to the big picture of what this law does is it takes a lot, a lot of the money that's being spent on care to help low-income people in Medicaid and in the exchanges, about $1.2 trillion, and it creates a $1.2 trillion tax cut, and it gives that money to a couple sources. One is um, high-income people, Two is insurance companies. Three are some other industries like the pharmaceutical industry, tanning salons, and medical device companies. So this really, if you think about this, it takes money that goes to care, for care and goes to hospitals and doctors, and it takes it away, and it, and it creates a big tax cut. That's really what Paul Ryan, that's really what um, many of the people in the House and in the White House are after here. This is nothing to do with health care as much as it is uh, a big tax cut and a big reduction in services.
3: And what can people, what can people do? So uh, I appreciate you coming on because you've helped even clear up some of this for me in a way that I can understand and repeat. Uh, What can people do about it?
5: So I I like to, to say that people should do what they're expert at doing. So if you've got a story where this impacts you, you tell that story. Uh, if you have um a um, you know the the skill and ability at organizing that you have um then then you have the ability to help people to get heard what i've been doing you know i've been taking this information and i've been going uh and challenging um republican congress people who refuse to have town halls and say that if they won't have a town hall i will go educate their constituents and I've just done a few of them just did one where for several thousand people on Facebook Live. Um, and, and so I think this education process is very important because, in particular because the House is doing this without um, proper means. They're not doing this with any public hearings. They're not having uh, any proper uh, rules kept. Uh, they're rushing the vote and they're not getting a score. Uh, they're not getting an evaluation from the party that they're supposed to get an evaluation from. So that means that we all have to act very, very quickly. And there are um, moderate Republicans and both the House and the Senate, but for right now it's the House, who are going to have to be asked to make a very, very difficult vote because their boss, Paul Ryan, is asking them to get on board. And look, we all have bosses. We know what that's like. Uh, But then again, um, I like to think that the real bosses are the people that put, put them in office. And they have to know that they're going to make a choice. That choice is going to be between the people who elected them and the people that are their party bosses. There's going to be a price to pay if they make the wrong choice. And the only way they're going to know that, the only way they're going to know that is if they continue to hear from people and continue to hear their stories and continue to hear them from them in volume. And I will tell you, it's working. I have uh, no question it's working. I'll be back in D.C. in a couple days and am hearing regularly how much they want to avoid uh, interacting with their constituents while they're dealing with this health care issue.
3: Got it. And a lot of people have talked about uh, single-payer. And can you just give a brief understanding of of what single-payer is, and and is that the next step for where we go from Obamacare?
5: Yeah, so look, I think, uh, look, right now we have a Republican President, Republican Senate, Republican Congress. So you're unlikely to see at the federal level um, any movements to single payer in the short run. But what you do find is, is a couple of things. One is when you take a poll of the issue, the more people get exposed to, to how much pain this situation can cause, how much pain Trump care can cause. There are, there are a number of people who think. That one reaction to something like Trump Care may, in fact, be single payer. The second point I'll make is I actually think a lot of this, as a practical matter, will happen at the state level. So, right now, the state of California has a bill that's in front of uh, the House where they're considering a single payer bill in California. There was one very sim. there was a similar one uh, in Minnesota, there was one earlier in Vermont, and I think you know, you're probably more likely to see a single-payer um, experiment happen first in a state um, and and then to have momentum there. But I do think uh, people look around and see that we don't have enough competition. Um, there's a lot of inefficiency. And I think if we take the step of taking health care away from people who need it, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we start to see a real outcry for that.
3: And what is, uh, can you just explain what single payer is? Like how is single payer different from what we have right now?
5: Sure. Let let me actually define two different terms for you. One one is universal coverage. And universal coverage doesn't necessarily have to mean single payer, but what universal coverage really means is we're covering everybody. And it could be through a private insurance plan, and it could be through the government, but we're covering everybody. Single payer says we're going to cover everybody, And it's going to be through the government. It's going to be through a government insurance plan like Medicare or like Medicaid.
3: Got it. And and who's doing that well? Like, is there a model out there in the world that is doing this in a way that we can learn from? And is there a reason why we didn't do this the first time?
5: (laughs) Well, I think the two most um, examples that people are most familiar with are England and Canada. And... Look, I think people in England and Canada would tell you that there are great parts to their system. You know, Nobody has to worry about money. Nobody has to worry about going broke, paying for a medical bill. Uh, but they have other problems. They have other challenges. They have a tougher time attracting enough physicians. Uh, sometimes people have to wait to get important health care services done. So, you know, there's no silver bullets. And, you know, in fact, there are probably... Hybrid approaches that take a little bit of the best of both worlds. I think there's countries like Sweden um, and Germany uh, that have hybrid systems that are that are considered to be very good systems.
3: Got it. Okay well last quest- last two questions. One is what's a piece of advice you have gotten in your career or your life that you that still resonates with you? This the first one. Uh,
5: my best piece of advice I've gotten is always contribute uh, more than you cost. And whatever you do, and I got that advice actually from my dad and it was whether and I think that applies to my marriage, to my relationship with my kids, to my relationship with my friends, to every job I've ever had, but, but most importantly also to what I give to society. Uh, if I can contribute more, got to always work hard to contribute more that uh, I'm costing whatever whoever I'm, uh, I'm dealing with or who has to deal
3: with me. Got it, and the, the, I like that I like that a lot. And the last question is, um, you know, you have been a senior leader in the government, and you've led in healthcare for uh, almost more than half my life, or you have led more than half my life. So I'd love to know, like, what's a, a leadership, uh, a piece of advice about leadership that you'd offer to? Uh, young people coming into their own as leaders, established leaders who are looking to refine their skills. Like, what's a, a piece of advice you have based on your experiences? It's a
5: great, it's a great question. You know, I think um, what I, in a real practical way to think about it is, you know, if you if you can try to be somebody's uh, the best boss somebody has ever had, you know, you want to be that person that twenty years later they still say, "Gosh, I remember." The, the time I spent working for DeRay or around him or what have you. Uh, and you've, you, you know, in order to have that kind of impact, you know, that generally means you're going to take somebody and stretch them and make them do things that they're uncomfortable with, but with a safety net. They may not always know that safety net's there, but what I always try to do is find people's sweet spot and then push them 10% harder. And and it's in that process of trying to figure out how they can get can go ten percent further than they would otherwise go that they learn a lot, and they learn that maybe they can go twenty percent further. Uh, but they can always go further than they think. And I think you, if you keep people um, working at least not as as um, up to their potential, so they can contribute their gifts, so they can feel valued, and then you say, um, find a way and you to challenge them to give ten percent more. You know, two years, three years, four years later, um, they're just different people with different careers and different capabilities.
3: Got it. So, Andy, I heard, too, that there was something about members of Congress having a different type of health care under Trump care than other people. Is that right? Uh,
5: Yeah, well, there was a a moment there, DeRay, when we had had Congress that almost got away with passing this bill uh, and uh, excluding themselves and their staffs.
3: And, but they got caught, so that got taken out.
5: Well, it's going to get it's going to get taken out because um, so some reporters did some very good work, and they found the section that was referenced. It was cute. It didn't say Congress doesn't have to do this. It said, and this shall apply to everybody except in one hundred five section D, whatever, on page one thousand, whatever. Well, someone went and looked it up, and it said, well, it's Congress and their staff. So, very interesting. From there. Nobody would admit how it happened. They, and two different explanations came out and from two different places, and both of the committees that could have drafted it blamed the other one. And so no one's willing to own it, but I think they quickly realized they had a PR problem, and they quickly drafted some language which said, okay, we're going um, we're gonna, to we're gonna add this back. It was just an error.
3: And it would have allowed essentially Congress to keep Obamacare and everybody else gets the really crappy Trump no, care. Not,
5: not exactly what it would have allowed is the the changes that were going on with pre-existing conditions and um, essential benefits that are the the ones that would really be the most painful uh, to exclude Congress from those.
3: Andy, another thing is I thought that the ACA included what I, what I've been calling instant enrollment for Medicaid. Can you explain that?
5: Yeah. So it used to be before the ACA that going to apply for Medicaid was like going to meet with some enrollment counselor. You had to do it face-to-face. You filled out all these forms. They asked you all these personal questions. You waited for months, and then you found out if you qualified. And by then, by the way, your employment status may have changed, and so you may not even have gotten Medicaid anymore. So it, was, it really discouraged people uh, from enrolling. One of the really cool things the ACA did was actually something that's very undiscovered. So kudos to you for figuring this out. But they, they create, created an automated enrollment, and a requirement that online instantly you could apply for and find out about uh, your Medicaid enrollment. And that, that in and of itself increased enrollment and decreased the uninsured rate because there were so many people that were eligible, but the system just wasn't working for them. Uh, there's been uh, there's been cases uh, we've had uh, I think a fairly infamous not very well known case where um, certain governors you know Governor Jindal the old governor from Louisiana comes to mind where they would part of the strategy was to make it difficult to enroll in Medicaid and um, so people who were qualified just weren't getting their benefits and that's one of the things that Obama's team really helped uh, straighten out.
3: Got it. And that's important for issues of access, right? I can imagine that uh, people who are low income, uh, racial m- people from underrepresented groups, are probably uh, the people who aren't being enrolled. And now, yeah, it's, about it.
5: you live in Camden or you live in the Bayou, uh, and you know your access is not so great. Your trust of government's not so great. Uh, you know you got to go in multiple times. It's not so. It's. It, you know, it felt and it, you know it feels demeaning. I mean, I think it, I think there's something to make create an automated experience that makes it feel like everybody else get a card like everybody else, see doctors like everybody else, and that's what healthcare should work if you believe in some measure of equality.
3: Awesome, Andy. Thanks so much for coming. I hope that you uh, remain a loyal friend of the pod and that we'll see you as this conversation about Obamacare and Trump Care continue.
5: Well, thank you here whenever you need me, and great luck with the pod. i be excited to listen to all your episodes.
3: Awesome. Wait, before you go, tell people how they can find you on Twitter.
5: You can find me on Twitter at, at a aslavitt, A-S-L-A-V-I-T-T.
3: He's a great follow. Thanks, Andy. Thank you. Today's shoutouts on Pod Save the People. First one is to Salon. So I went to Salon Show in uh, Vancouver, and if you've not seen her live, you gotta see her live. The second is to Mimi Valdez. Mimi, I uh, used to be the editor in chief of Vibe magazine. She's Pharrell's creative director at I Am Mother, uh, and she's just an all around dope woman. And the third is this incredible poet, Clint Smith. Uh, the third, who you should check out. Uh, check him out on Twitter. Check him out online. Um, those are today's shoutouts. Thanks to my guests, United States Senator Cory Booker, Andy Slavitt, Brittany Pecknet, and Samuel Sinyangwe. If you liked today's episode, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. And thank you to the sponsors of today's show, SeatGeek and ZipRecruiter. Please support them the way they support this podcast. Go to podsavethepeople.com to access a set of resources about this episode and tools to get and to stay involved. You know, this work is as much about being woke as it is about staying woke. This is our country. This is ours. Don't let up. Keep the fight.
4: Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. When booking with other vacation rental apps, sounds like this. This
2: place doesn't look like the pictures. Ah, Is there a door behind all those spiders. It's time to try one that sounds more like a vacation.
6: Ah, this is perfect.
2: Relax, you booked a Verbo.